Great, well, uh, let's get started. Um, my mum was listening to one of the lectures and she said there was somebody who had a really bad cough and I should have said, I'm sorry you've got such a bad cough. So I've actually got some water if anybody does have a really bad cough this week um, and wants to share the billing with me for the lecture. Um, just, just keep coughing and I'll try and, get, I'll try and give you that sip of water. Okay, so this is the penultimate lecture uh, approaching Shakespeare on, uh, for this term and today I'm going to talk about Macbeth. The question I want to suggest that Macbeth asks us, or demands that we address, is the question philosophers call the question of agency. The question of agency. Why do the things that happen, happen? So, what I'm going to be talking about is how we can answer, or at least interrogate, questions of agency in Macbeth. Why do the events of Macbeth happen? And to approach this question, I'm going to draw on some theories of tragedy and some theories of historical philosophy and on performance. As in the previous lectures, what I want to try and say is that the play prompts this question, it doesn't answer it. Okay, it prompts the question rather than answering it. And I'm going to... S- There's so many coughs now, I don't know what to do with my, uh, with my water. Um, I am sorry, you... Uh, Uh, It's a bad point in the term, isn't it? Okay, but I want to start not with Macbeth, but with another early modern document. And that's Robert Burton's huge book on the causes and the effects of melancholy, the anatomy of melancholy, first published in 1621. Burton's self-appointed task is to compile information about melancholy not to present a particular argument or an empirical case. It's a policy of accretion which adds more stuff rather than uh, sort of trying to um, uh, assess the merits of different uh, different kinds of approach, different kinds of material. And if we look at the contents page to Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, we can see something about what this uh, policy of accretion, where this policy of accretion leads. Burton tries to make sense of all his material by setting it under numerous headings and subheadings. And the bit of it that I'm most interested in in relation to our question of agency is the catalogue or synopsis. In discussing the question of the causes of melancholy, Burton offers a range of possibilities. And I hope if I go through these, the relevance, their relevance to Macbeth might start to emerge. First, he wonders whether the causes of melancholy might be supernatural or natural. Supernatural causes he subdivides as from God immediately or by second causes or from the devil immediately with a digression of the nature of spirits and devils or supernaturally but immediately by magicians and witches. Okay, so these are his supernatural causes from God, from the devil or via magicians uh, and witches. The natural causes are also subdivided. Primary, as stars provided by aphorisms, signs from physiognomy. And secondary, that breaks down into congenital, temperament or heredity. And secondary, secondary causes have all kinds of um, agents. Nurses, education, terrors, scoffs, bitter jests, loss of liberty, poverty, loss of friends. These causes are broken down still further. If melancholy is in the mind, it may be caused from within the body, fumes from the stomach, a hot brain with corrupted blood, 
or from outside the body, too much sun, too much study, too much garlic. If it's in the body, well, there are lots of potential physiological causes. If diet is the cause, it may be quantity or quality that's at fault. If passions are a cause, these can be anything from anger, envy, ambition, lust, shame, fear. For our benefit, there's a special section on the love of learning as a cause of melancholy, with a digression on the misery of scholars and why the muses are melancholy. Another curly bracket may get us to the Brown Report. So I've begun with Burton because he's a near-contemporary of Shakespeare who, like Shakespeare, can see a range of different causes, some of which look to us incompatible or deriving from widely differing understandings of the world, but he presents them as potential causes for a single phenomenon. Broadly speaking, and here I think Burton's uh, analysis of causes of melancholy is actually an analysis of what happens in the early modern world. These are the kinds of causes that people give, and they're the kinds of causes which are competing, uh, are competing claims for the question of agency in the world, why these things happen. Uh, Burton's causes of melancholy result from three potential grand causes. The first is the melancholic individual, him or herself, who may or may not be able to help themselves. Uh, That may be because they're melancholy because of their temperament, but they may be be melancholy because they study, lust, eat garlic too much, whatever, so they could do something about that and effect a cure. So sometimes the cause is internal, and sometimes it's within the control of the individual, and sometimes not. The second cause of melancholy is other people. Other people's actions have a negative impact on the individual. They might die and make him feel sad. They might put him in prison. They might make fun of him. Ginger rodent, one might uh, might think of. The third is the supernatural or metaphysical world, a category that includes God, the devil, and God and devil's intermediaries, magicians and witches. So when Burton is trying to work out why stuff happens, in his case why melancholy happens, there are three possible uh, groups of of reasons why they might happen. And in Burton's uh, analysis, they have equal claims on our attention. Okay, so someone who's starting to believe in heredity heredity as a a cause of melancholy still believes in witches, uh, the the stars, uh, too much garlic. All these things exist in the same realm of possibility. And I think we could set out the question of agency in Macbeth in broadly similar terms. Is this a story about an individual, a tragic story? We tend to think of tragedies as being people who direct their own fate. Is this a story in Macbeth in which Macbeth willingly or unwillingly directs the action of the play? Is this a story in which he is acted on by other people? Is he passive and uh, shaped by the people around him? Or is this a story in which he is puppeted by supernatural forces beyond his control? Although these possibilities can't really be simultaneously true, in that if you have a worldview which agrees with one of them, you probably have to dismiss the other two. So even though they can't be simultaneously true, I think the play does seem designed to set them all out at the same time to set out the idea that Macbeth is in control of his fate, to set out the idea that other people are, 
and to set out the idea that there is a supernatural force at work in this play. All of these are set out as possible causes, and I don't think the play answers which one is primary. Now, we could look at this question of agency in a different way. On the 17th of May, 2010, the Evening Standard carried a headline, Macbeth gets away with murder in all-star trial. This is the uh, article. In a final twist that would make Shakespeare turn in his grave, Macbeth and his wife have been found not guilty of murdering King Duncan and Banquo. This was the verdict of a one-night-only mock trial at the Royal Courts of Justice, in which the case against the couple was examined with actors playing the defendants, judge and key witnesses. Former spook star Matthew McFadden and Shameless's Maxine Peake played the couple. Macbeth pleaded diminished responsibility, while Lady Macbeth claimed she was coerced. Toby Stevens, Toby Jones, Roger Lloyd Pack and Martin Shaw were also involved. Now, in some ways, as philosophers have pointed out, the question of agency is a question of responsibility and therefore a question of blame and punishment. This trial, this mock trial of the Macbeths uh, earlier this year, and a whole genre of other similar amateur investigations of the play that you can very easily Google, these are all concerned with a version of agency. Who is to blame for what happens? Or, to put it another way, can we get Macbeth off the charge? Online message boards seem united in the idea that the best hope of acquittal for Macbeth is to blame Lady Macbeth. And that, as we'll see, has been often the critical reaction too. The reported trial I just mentioned goes for a defence of diminished responsibility, i.e. Macbeth is not in control, is not a responsible agent. A nice comic story by the American humorist James Thurber called The Macbeth Murder Mystery also plays with this trope, bringing the genre of the detective story in which the question of who done it is literally key to Macbeth. And I think that helps us to see Macbeth as a different kind of whodunit. Uh, this is from uh, Thurber. The, the, the story is that uh, somebody who doesn't know Shakespeare has, but, but loves uh, murder mysteries has read Macbeth. And they're being asked what they thought of it. Tell me, I said, did you read Macbeth? I had to read it, she said. There wasn't a scrap of anything else to read in the whole room. Did you like it, I asked. No, I did not, she said decisively. In the first place, I don't think for a moment that Macbeth did it. I looked at her blankly. Did what, I asked. I don't think for a moment that he killed the king. I don't think that Macbeth woman was mixed up in it either. You suspect them the most, of course, but those are the ones that are never guilty, or shouldn't be anyway. Who do you suspect, I asked suddenly. Macduff, she said promptly. Good God, I whispered softly. Oh, Macduff did it all right, said the murder specialist. Hercule Poirot would have got him easily. How did you figure it out, I demanded. Well, she said, I didn't straight away. At first I suspected Banquo. Then, of course, he was the second person killed. That was good right there, that part. The person you suspect of the first murder should always be the second victim. Is that so? I murmured. Now, Macbeth is the play of Shakespeare's in which, in some ways, we know most clearly who did it. We, watch, we more or less watch him do it. That's what the play uh, sets up right from the start. But the fact that it is susceptible to these literalised versions of whodunit, I think, does... Uh, engage in a different way with the question of agency that the play explores so equivocally 
Uh, one answer to who done it is it's, it, it is very straightforward. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth in some way have done it. Uh, but still the question remains, circling around the play, who really did it? What, where, where does agency, where does responsibility lie? Let's try to set this out a little bit more clearly. Uh, and I want to try and do that by thinking about the way Macbeth unfolds, the way the play begins. You'll remember that the first scene of Macbeth introduces the witches, weird speech rhythms accompanied by thunder and lightning. They seem to know what's going to happen when the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, and they sonorously and ominously arrange to meet with Macbeth. Does that mean they, will, they know where Macbeth's going to be? Or are they able to draw him to them? Is their power, therefore, the power of prophecy or of direction? In the next scene, we discover the aftermath of the battle. A bloodied captain tells the king of the bravery of Macbeth and Banquo and the treachery of the Thane of Cawdor. This is a scene following straight on from the scene of the witches. It's a scene which seems to establish a world of human agency, Uh, In the same situation, a battle, some men behave in a cowardly way, some men behave uh, in a a brave way, and that seems to be because of the kind of men they are. The cowardly ones are punished, the brave ones are rewarded. The king orders Cawdor to be executed, and that his title should be given instead to Macbeth. It's a very clear human uh, causal world, Uh, where human behaviour is rewarded and punished by human agents. Scene three comes back with a more extended scene with the witches, into which Macbeth and Banquo enter. Does the fact that they find the witches rather than vice versa suggest that they are in control, or have the witches set up this encounter? (coughs) The witches prophesy to Macbeth about his future greatness, Thane of Glam's, Thane of Cawdor, king hereafter. To Macbeth, the attribution Thane of Cawdor is impossible. The Thane of Cawdor lives, a prosperous gentleman. But we know, because of the scene we've just witnessed, and with it the dramatic irony which is so constitutive of Shakespeare's working methods, we know that the Thane of Cawdor has been stripped of his title by the king because he was a coward. So we know there is a human reason why uh, the thaneship of Cawdor is up for grabs. The witches here know something that we already know. We, we knew more than them. Uh, we were ahead of them uh, in knowing this information. Maybe that makes them seem less powerful to us, whereas they seem creepily omnipotent to Macbeth, particularly when, having suggested that he will become Thane of Cawdor and ultimately king, messengers immediately arrive from the king to greet him, Thane of Cawdor. To Macbeth, this makes the gap between prophecy and enactment frighteningly slender. But to us, that's actually a gap between command, the king's words in Act 1, Scene 2, and fulfilment, the delivery of that message in the next scene to Macbeth. The witches, that's to say, seem to interpose in a chain of human actions rather than to direct actions themselves. But on the other hand, we also know something that Macbeth doesn't. They'd already arranged to meet him on the heath. Maybe they are in control after all. In these three opening scenes then, Shakespeare sets up one major aspect of the dilemma of agency the play goes on to explore. 
Is Macbeth in control of his actions, or are the witches? Now, two filmed versions of the opening of the play may help clarify what's at stake in this question, which is so explicitly posed here in these opening scenes. These are films by Orson Welles in 1948 and by Roman Polanski in 1971, both quite widely available. But I'm going to describe how they work uh, anyway. Orson Welles begins his film with a shadowy image of three shapeless witches bent over a cauldron placed on top of a crag in a swirling, surreal landscape. And the film opens with them speaking in extremely dodgy Scots accents, the famous lines from 4-1, double, double, toil and trouble. And they list some of the monstrous ingredients of the potion over an extreme close-up of the cauldron bubbling away. Okay, so the, the, the witch material from much later in the play is brought right to the beginning uh, in Wells' film. Lines from Act 1, Scene 1 are patched into this scene, so as they speak there to meet with Macbeth, the witch's hands complete their moulding of a clay figurine from the contents of the cauldron. A climactic, rousing piece of music introduces the credit sequence, and the next image is of Macbeth and Banquo galloping through the same misty landscape, cutting to the witches, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked, this may comes. So Wells cuts the entirety of Act 1, Scene 2, Shakespeare's discussion of the battle. That means that the witches deliver their prophecies and are driven away when the messengers arrive, who bring news of Macbeth's elevation to the Thamedom of Cawdor. But that's the first we know of it in the film, because the discussion of why that's happened in 1-2 has been cut. The badge of office is taken from the neck of the wretched prisoner and passed to Macbeth, whose asides are delivered as voiceovers against a close-up of his troubled face. As with any text, then, there are a number of ways to interpret Wells' direction here, but one result of his cutting and arranging seems to be that the witches have more power. They make an image of Macbeth from their cauldron as if he is their creature. Uh, the film is sometimes called the voodoo Macbeth, and it certainly makes use of a little a kind of figurine of a person to which things can be done which have consequences to uh, the physical body of that person. The clay model of Macbeth is used by Wells later in the film, including a striking cutaway from Macbeth to the image of the figurine right at the moment when Macduff cuts his head off. So what happens is that the, the, the head of the figurine is cut off uh, it, 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 on camera, not the head of Macbeth himself. But by omitting the scene which explains the rational political reason for Macbeth's promotion... The rational political reason is that he has been a brave and loyal warrior, whereas the Thane of Cawdor has been a traitor. News of his elevation comes as a surprise in Wells' film. The audience does not have prior knowledge, as it does in Shakespeare's play, and thus perhaps we share with Macbeth a sense of the witch's power. In Wells' film, they predict something, and immediately it happens. So Wells' answer, I think, would have to be, it is the witches who make things happen. If we were to compare this version of the opening scenes with that of uh, Roland Polanski, Roman Polanski, we can see some interesting differences of emphasis. <coughs> Polanski places the first witch scene as a kind of prologue, separated from the rest of the film by the opening credit sequence. <coughs> a pink dawn lightens on a damp beach. The tide is out, and on the sand, 
a group of three women dig silently uh, in the wet ground, performing a ritual burial of a noose and a dissevered arm which holds a dagger. They speak the lines of Act 1, Scene 1. The atmosphere is heavy and mysterious, but there's none of Wells's melodramatic mist or shadows. As the credits run, we hear the noise of battle, horseback charges, the clash of swords, men shouting. The scene opens to the, op- to the aftermath of the battle on that same stretch of beach. The soldiers move among the dead. One casualty stirs, only to be brutally clubbed to death in the sand. The king arrives on horseback with a fanfare to hear the news of the battle. Cordor is brought in bleeding. The, the king uses his sword point to take the chain of office from him and to hand it to his messengers for delivery to Macbeth. A moody close-up of Macbeth in front of the gallows being prepared for Cordor isn't quite the image of the triumphant image of Bologna's bridegroom that we've heard about. He and Banquo are sheltering from the rain when they hear the witches singing and go and seek them out. The witches don't seem particularly interested to see them and they deliver their prophecies in a very offhand way. Now the keynote of Polanski's film is violence and blood. A.C. Bradley wrote that Macbeth leaves a decided impression of colour and that colour is the colour of blood. And in these opening scenes, Polanski steeps the palette in red from the dawn sky to the file of blood sprinkled on the witch's burial, the wounded face of the captain, the blood on the back of the soldier being clubbed to death on the beach, the king's penance decorated in heraldic red. In this, we might think Polanski translates the dominant mood of Macbeth's language. Uh, the word blood and its cognates appear more than 40 times in Macbeth. It's much the most uh, uh, frequently, uh, it's the play in which it's most frequently used. So we might say that Polanski is trying to translate that linguistic texture into the visual palette film offers. But what's interesting here is that this is a violence strongly associated with the world before Macbeth kills the king. Sometimes a rather sentimental view of Macbeth prevails, in which the murder of Duncan is the act which sets everything in the kingdom at odds. But Polanski shows us a world, by contrast, which is entirely built on the valoration of male violence, one in which Duncan's power, as well as Macbeth's in turn, relies on the violent... um, Uh, relies on violence, uh, not on some sense of right. In this, it seems that for Polanski, the witches have rather less influence, even while they're presented as less explicitly supernatural than they are in Wells' version. In his interpretation, then, it seems that Polanski turned Shakespeare's play to the sources from which Shakespeare took it. Last week on Measure for Measure, I was talking about the difficulty of bending the story. Bending the story is a phrase from the ep- a phrase about playwriting from the epilogue to Henry V. The difficulty of bending the story into a comic shape from which it seemed always struggling to escape. And also I talked about the way in which the source's ending, in which Isabella and Angelo get married, still makes its presence felt in Shakespeare's play, even where he's substantially rewriting that ending. The source, that's to say, retained a sort of ghostly hold over the material. And perhaps the same might be said of Macbeth. Shakespeare takes this story from Holinshed's Chronicles, so that's the source for his English 
history plays. Uh, and it's interesting to think how history and tragedy uh, are interwoven in, in Shakespeare's uh, imagination. What makes, a, what makes the story of the decline of a king, uh, the sort of de casibus definition of tragedy from the medieval period, the downfall of a, uh, of a king, what makes that sometimes historical part of a process uh, of continuity and change and sometimes tragic the, the story, an, an end stop story which has no future beyond the decline uh, of the individual so sometimes Shakespeare uses a kind of de casibo structure as part of a historical sequence which is going to continue, which can sustain the downfall of an individual and cha- turns its attention to other characters in the, in, in the story sometimes he uses it as a completely tragic structure in which once the, once the prince has fallen there's no interest in anything else in the play and no way of going forward here, Shakespeare turns the story, the De Casibus story, into a tragedy, but it's not as we might expect the tragedy of the king who is cut down, but that of his usurper. So Macbeth is the opposite of Richard II. It's a Richard II rewritten from the point of view uh, of the challenger, not of the, uh, not, not of the king. Uh, and, and so Shakespeare, I think, is revisiting some ground he's already covered uh, in the history plays. Macbeth is a much better play looked at alongside the history plays, I think, than alongside the uh, so-called great tragedies. And the way Shakespeare uh, does this is to try to sacralise the story he gets from the history of Scotland. In the historical sources in Holinshed, Macbeth emerges as King of Scotland out of a violent dog-eat-dog world of different thanes jockeying for position and power. Duncan had done this in his turn, but had now grown weak. Macbeth's rise, supported in the sources by Banquo, is the inevitable change of ruler in a society that has no principle of rule other than strength. So the mightiest is the, is the best, the strongest is the best in the Scotland, the historical Scotland that's being depicted in the, in the sources. If you've seen the modernised television version of the play Macbeth on the Estate, you might recognise this from their interpolated prologue to the story. So Macbeth takes power in the sources from a weakened warlord and has power taken from him in due course by another warlord. He is not in the sources, and as Shakespeare makes him, the regicide who takes the crown from a holy king Duncan Remember the description of Duncan's silver skin laced with his golden blood is a kind of uh, saintly, uh, uh, almost sort of more than human, superhuman figure in that description. The regicide in Shakespeare's play is a crime against nature itself. The sense of moral outrage and disturbance in Shakespeare's play is entirely his invention. And he turns his sources into a play in which rightful succession is interrupted by the terrible, ambitious agency of Macbeth. So Macbeth is a single person who upsets the, the, the way things ought to be. That's a, that's a sort of parable of individual agency uh, in, the, in the sources. Um, uh, sorry, in, in, in the play. Rather than, as we get in the sources, a story of political instability in which might, not right, always rules. I think there are, though, remainders and reminders of the world of the sources, that politically unstable, violent world of the sources. It's still in Macbeth. And the vivid example 
Uh, The most vivid example, I think, is the description of Macbeth in the battle in Act 1, Scene 2. Before we've even met Macbeth, the captain describes his capacity for extreme ruthlessness. This is from Act 1, Scene 2. Brave Macbeth, well he deserves that name. Disdaining fortune with his brandished steel which smoked with bloody execution, like Valor's minion, carved out his passage till he faced the slave which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he unseamed him from the nave to the chops and fixed his head upon our battlements. King Duncan's reply, O valiant cousin, worthy gentleman, makes clear that he approves. Shakespeare's Macbeth is at this point, like his avatar in Hollinshed, a man who has gained power through extreme violence. What changes is not that he becomes violent, it's not that violence enters the peaceful world of Scotland, it's rather that that violence is turned against rather than for the sovereign. In this, we might think that Macbeth does not need the witches. I've already described the story that Shakespeare tells us as a parable of individual agency in which one person's uh, unwillingness or, or refusal to be to stay in his allotted place overturns the natural order. In Hollinshed, the witches play a very minor role, and it's largely the role of prophecy. There's also a very, very interesting picture of the witches uh, in Hollinshed. Hollinshed's an illustrated book, well worth having a look at, where there are three very neatly uh, dressed Tudor, sort of Tudor ladies, or, or me- late medieval uh, ladies. They're not at all hags or uh, no warts or those kind of witch, witchy uh, signifiers. They're, that they're, um, they're, they look quite different from what we might expect. So they play a role of prophecy, a rather minor role of prophecy. They know what will happen. Shakespeare has developed their role for the play, and we also think that Middleton has added further to that the scene with Hecate is taken from Middleton's play, The Witch. And that suggests that the witch scenes are popular and enjoyable on the stage, and that the more witch material that can be put into the play, the better. Diane Perkis has written compellingly about how the Macbeth witches are a palimpsest of different witch beliefs, the equivalent, perhaps, of those incompatible lines of argument and analysis in Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy with which we began. The witches identify themselves as having rather limited powers, the punishment of the husband, uh, sailor husband of the woman who would not share her chestnuts, for example, uh, they, they, uh, witches say that the <coughs> that they'll they'll um, th- his ship can't be lost. They can't kill him. He's gone to sea uh, in the tiger, the ship, the tiger. Uh, they can't do anything uh, really serious to him, but they're going to make some really bad weather. That's pretty much what they say. Though his bark cannot be lost, yet it shall be tempest tossed. So they've got a limited uh, 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 amount of influence and a rather different sphere of influence. One might think from the government of a country. Strikingly, there is no return for the witches at the conclusion of the play. They open it, but they do not, in Shakespeare's text, conclude it, although many productions, including both the films I just mentioned by Polanski and by Wells, reintroduce them at the end. That Shakespeare does not may suggest that they are not active agents 
but passive predictors of how things will turn out, and that things do turn out the way they're predicted is sufficient. They don't need also to be there. And in any case, perhaps, we should not take the witches too literally. It's often asserted that the early modern theatre left long behind it medieval forms of psychomachic theatre, P-S-Y-C-H-O-M-A-C-H-I-A, the psychomachia. Psychomachic theatre saw the play's characters representing not complete and separate individual human beings, but qualities or personifications, giving the whole drama the sense of taking place within a single mind pulled in different directions. We're always told that this form of theatre was abandoned by the newly realist psychological models of the early modern stage. I'm not sure that this is entirely true, that we did leave behind, that the early modern stage does leave entirely behind psychomachic theatre. Or rather, I think it's the case that, as Shakespeare writes, we can see him experimenting with different ways of creating character, through dialogue and through soliloquy, to be sure, but also through foils and duplications, and perhaps by splitting a single psychology between different figures on the stage. In this reading, we could see Iago as a part of Othello, or Laertes as a part of Hamlet, or the witches of Macbeth. (coughs) They, the witches, speak out his ambition. They make it audible, and therefore they're extremely uh, important in in, in a drama. How would we know what Macbeth wanted uh, if no one speaks it on the stage uh, and what the witches do is to speak that for him. Perhaps we should think of them less as separate agents and more as strange internal voices which direct his actions and which are externalised on the stage in some sense for our benefit uh, as as, as a model of, of psychological projection. Okay, so so far I've spent a fair amount of time on the play's opening, largely because it establishes uh, a number of ways in which agency is questioned and problematised between the human and the supernatural realms. We're not going to see much more of the witches after the first uh, 20 minutes of the play, so it's it's a very active sense way of setting up uh, the dilemma, the, the, the dilemma of agency right at the beginning of the play. And those questions, it's important to acknowledge, have all been raised before the figure who has probably taken most of the flack for what happens in the play is even introduced. That figure is, of course, Lady Macbeth. The idea that Lady Macbeth takes over Macbeth and makes him act has been a compelling one, and one which often brings criticism into an apparently willing participation with the play's own fear of women and of female power. We probably all know the outlines of this argument, that in calling on devilish spirits when she reads Macbeth's letter telling her about the witches, in using highly charged metaphorical vocabulary about suckling children, nobody would have, from reading a lot of analysis of Lady Macbeth, you wouldn't realise that this is just a figure of speech she uses. She hasn't actually dashed any uh, babies, uh, at least not so far as we know. Um, And in demeaning Macbeth's masculinity so thoroughly, and in planning the murder so as to frame the grooms, that in all of this, Lady Macbeth makes her unwilling husband go through with a murderous act, which is always really against his better judgment, that milk of human kindness that she herself recognises. 
Certainly, this is a cluster of activity by Lady Macbeth in the first half of the play, and it, prevents, it presents her as a powerful female agent. It's striking the extent to which criticism has found this threatening. If we find Macbeth a misogynistic play which is deeply distrustful of powerful women, we may see this as a further aspect of Shakespeare's direct address to the company's new patron, King James, and therefore the representation of Lady Macbeth, like the Scottish setting, like the whitewash recuperation of Banquo, whom James counted as his ancestor and who therefore had to be cleared of any wrongdoing uh, in Shakespeare's telling of the story, and the interest in witches for a king who, as we know, had written a work called Demonology. These become all parts of the play's pitch for royal approval in the newly and significantly homosocial world of James's court. It's always, of course, impossible to know how plays, almost always impossible to know how plays were received by uh, their first audiences. But we do have, or at least we think we have, an unusual contemporary account of Macbeth in early modern performance. The visit of the astrologer and medicine man, Simon Foreman, to the Globe in the spring of 1611. Simon Foreman writes about his uh, visit to the, uh, to the theatre in terms which have been very problematic for critics, and it's certainly a source that you should use with some caution. For example, he, he, he begins by saying that uh, Macbeth and Banquo are, uh, are riding through the forest. It's quite hard to think how that really worked on the stage. It doesn't seem like a description of a, of a staged uh, play. But one of the things... Uh, Simon Foreman really enjoys about, Bank, about, about Macbeth is the scene where the ghost of Banquo sits in Macbeth's seat at the banquet. Uh, this, is, this is the bit from his notebooks. The next night being at supper with his nobleman whom he had bid to a feast to the which also Banquo should have come, he began to speak of noble Banquo and to wish that he were there. And as he thus did, standing up to drink a carouse to him, the ghost of Banquo came and sat down in his chair behind him, and he, turning about to sit down again, saw the ghost of Banquo, which fronted him so that he fell into a great passion of fear and fury, uttering many words about his murder, by which, when they heard that, Mac that Banquo was murdered, they suspected Macbeth. This is the most vivid part of the play uh, for Foreman, really interesting, uh, puts a very interesting focus on a very particular uh, element of business. Why is it that Banquo uh, is in Macbeth's, uh, Macbeth's chair? Why isn't he in his own, why isn't he in his own seat, which would seem uh, much more uh, compelling in certain ways? Earlier, though, in his account, Simon Foreman suggests, usefully for what I'm trying to argue today, both that Macbeth is responsible for killing Duncan and that Lady Macbeth is. This is what he says. And Macbeth contrived to kill Duncan, and through the persuasion of his wife, did that night murder the king in his own castle. Macbeth contrived to kill Duncan, and through the persuasion of his wife, did that night murder the king in his own castle. Foreman sense here that Macbeth contrives, a very active verb given to Macbeth, and Lady Macbeth persuades, may suggest a confusion about agency from the very start uh, of the reception of this play, very much like the one we are exploring. The murder of Duncan thus becomes overdetermined. It has too many rather than too few agents. But Foreman may also suggest a kind of synergy in this 
which is Shakespeare's only portrait of an operative adult marriage in process. He's at the Macbeths are the only couple, really, we see uh, dealt, whose relationship and whose marriage is dealt with in any uh, detail at all. Separating out who does what may therefore undo what Shakespeare may be trying to present, a passionate folly à deux, perhaps, committed by a partnership in which separating out culpability misreads the dynamic of what has been written. Saying, as readers often do, I don't think Macbeth would have done it if she hadn't goaded him into it, is, of course, to mistake this literary artefact for a real event which could have turned out differently. It isn't. But it is a question whose naivety I think the play encourages rather than disavows. I think the play encourages us to ask whether Macbeth would have done it had Lady Macbeth uh, not uh, goaded him into doing it and can't possibly give us an answer because there isn't a counterfactual uh, 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 version of the story in which that doesn't happen. Like all those questions uh, that we've been thinking about this term, it can only be asked and not answered. Lady Macbeth's particular characterisation her active calling up of those spirits to unsex her, her revealing use of the possessive my battlements, and her ongoing fascination for actors and critics, these all suggest a particular form of agency and activity on her part. But her collapse after the murderous events and her marginalisation both from Macbeth's further plots and from Shakespeare's quickly erases the significance uh, of her uh, agency. Macbeth's judgment is of a dead butcher, the Macbeth who unseems, uh, sorry, sorry, Malcolm's judgment is of a dead butcher, the Macbeth who unseems from the knave to the chops, and a fiend-like queen. <coughs> but like so many of those figures, you might think of Fortinbras or Octavius Caesar, figures who step delicately onto the corpse-strewn stage at the end of a tragedy, Malcolm's analysis is politicised, self-interested, and fundamentally anticlimactic. If Shakespeare asks the question of Lady Macbeth's agency in the play, he seems uh, to disavow an answer, as he could have done. He doesn't, for example, show her to be motivated by greed. She never once expresses the wish to be queen, for example. He doesn't show her to be unfaithful, as he does, say, Tamara in Titus Andronicus, or all the adulterous women in contemporary domestic tragedies, a genre with which Macbeth shares many characteristics. These are available shorthands for female wickedness, uh, greed, uh, ambition uh, and lust, uh, none of which are attached explicitly to Lady Macbeth in the play. So like Macbeth, that's to say, and like the witches, Lady Macbeth has a claim to be the answer to the question who makes the things that happen happen, but the fact that there are so many other claimants keeps this question, rather than its answers, at the forefront. I want to finish with Macbeth himself. This is Macbeth at the end of the play, when Lady Macbeth has died, and the witch's prophecies have begun to unravel. It's a famous speech of resignation and futility, and one that uses a striking metaphor. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Struggling here for an image, Macbeth, sitting on the stage in the Globe Theatre, lights on the image of the actor, 
strutting and fretting. It's a common enough trope in the period, the, so- the so-called teatrum mundi, all the world's a stage. But the uncertainty about the tone of the metaphor is, I think, crucial to questions about agency in this period. And one of the reasons why the theatre is so popular, it offers itself as a kind of epistemology, a way of knowing, a way of understanding the world for its period. Who or what makes the things happen in the theatre? Is it the physical bodies of the actors on stage moving and speaking to enact narrative and character? Is it the words penned by a playwright who may well be unknown to those who are watching? Is it the team of theatre personnel who make sure the play gets mounted? Is it, in a more phenomenological sense, the audience who, by witnessing that things are happening, make them happen, a version of that old philosophical chestnut about the tree falling in the forest and being heard or not heard. Questions of agency are intrinsic to the theatre and thus to the metaphor of theatre within the drama. Macbeth does not, of course, end with this speech. The script has further to go. And when Macbeth vows to die with harness on on our back, die with harness on our back, and he agrees to fight Macduff, yet I will try the last. Is he now in control of his actions in the very last moments of his life? Or is he merely working out a part that has already been written by witches' prophecies, by historical chronicle, by audience expectations of tragedy, by Shakespeare himself? I've tried to show that the question, but not the answer of agency, is in a real sense the subject of, its pl- of this play, and that by thinking about it in relation to its sources, its cinematic iterations, its language, and even its parodies, we can see how insistent and how unsettling is that interrogation. Next week is my final lecture, and I'm going to be discussing The Winter's Tale. If these lectures weren't being recorded, my question would be WTF. But in its more acceptable version, the question I'm going to ask about The Winter's Tale is, why? Thank you. (laughs)